As was mentioned earlier, not only in the announcements, but as well as in some of the songs that we've sung, and some of the thoughts expressed in the prayer that we have mutually prayed unto our Heavenly Father, how glorious and wonderful is the opportunity that we have this evening to consider the blessing that's ours, to meet, to offer adoration and praise to our God in heaven. And certainly as we are able to consider tonight a lesson entitled, The Mystery of Godliness, you might have noted from the reading that Lucas read for us from 1 Timothy 3.16, that exact phrase is found, and that's what led me to the title of the lesson this evening. It is back to that passage that I would direct your attention as we read that again. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up unto glory. As we give some thought tonight or reflection upon the specifics of that passage, might we give some thought to asking what is then the mystery of godliness? Let's begin our study tonight, perhaps pursuing it in the following way. The book of 1 Timothy, as we might well recall, has a number of rather specific and rather direct expressions relative to the passages for, for, for in fact, the church. The church is such a powerful entity, and in the character and the nature of that church, we are aware that perhaps among the books of the New Testament, the books of First and Second Timothy, as well as the book of Titus, directly give instructions for how the church is to conduct its business, the way in which the church is to in fact have its elders and what their qualifications are, not only that, the deacons and what their roles in fact are as well. But even more than that, what about the individual members like you and like me? How should we conduct ourselves? How should this worship take place? And what other features should characterize us daily? The books of First and Second Timothy are loaded with matters related to all of those things. Might we notice in regard to those thoughts, the mystery of godliness is thus a high note in the book of First Timothy. And the note, in fact, occurs in some ways near the very middle of this book, near the end of chapter 3. You might note one of the comments that I ask you to note with me about the opening consideration. The elements of this mystery and how great it is. It's clear that the Holy Spirit had much to share. Much is packed into this one little verse. Let's take a few moments and not to say we'll do the fullness of its justice, but we certainly will learn much about what this mystery is. One of the things that we should quickly understand, it seems, is the language that opens the verse. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. That word great literally is in the Greek, and it, uh, it sends our attention to its highest echelon. It's as if Paul is stretching to find that word that lifts our thoughts to its highest peak. Great is this mystery, and might we notice, he says it's without controversy. In the Greek, that word, as you can see with me, literally means undeniably. It's as if the evidence is all about us. He says, undeniably and without question, this mystery is in fact this great. What is the greatness of this mystery? The verse moves on to tell us what the rest of it is. But at this point, one of the first things we should quickly dispense with is this. The word mystery is one of the favorite words used by Paul, wasn't it? It's found not only here in this passage, he frequently used it in the Roman letter, it occurs in the Galatian letter, the Ephesian letter, as well as some others. When Paul used that word mystery, let's quickly notice that when you and I think about the word mystery today, we think about something that we don't know, it's mysterious, 
It is in fact perhaps even beyond the capability of us to appreciate it. That is not the understanding that we should associate to its usage in this passage. For in fact, if we turn back to Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, we learn something very dramatic about the mystery. So significant is it. Let's read that. Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, near the close of that book, listen here to what Paul affirmed relative to the mystery of the gospel. He says, Now to him that is of power to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery, which was kept secret since the world began, but now is made manifest, and by the scriptures of the prophets according to the commandment of the everlasting God, hath made known to all nations for the obedience of faith. And hence in that position we notice that there was a time when the mystery had not yet been revealed. There was a time when the mystery was thus yet within the friendly confines of the omnipotence and the omniscience of God. But did not Paul say it has now been revealed? Thus you and I should be very cautious of those individuals who perhaps preach or otherwise teach, and they say that some of the most rudimentary things of the matters of salvation cannot be known. That isn't true. The mystery of which Paul spoke has been thoroughly revealed, and he even asserted it's in the Scriptures. It is to the Word of God that we can go and find the answers, as we noted in prayer, of those great questions that have eternal import. Yes, indeed, that mystery has been revealed. Notice in this passage before us, in 1 Timothy 3.16, he's about to expound upon this mystery. As we see the explanation of some of these simple truths, let's begin by noting how verse 16 thus begins. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. There's the first element. That's the first platform in this mystery of godliness that is here mentioned for us to consider. Let's give some thought to thus the manifestation in the flesh. There are those who make a great deal of consideration about the way in which this part of the verse is presented. If you're reading, for instance, in the American Standard Translation, you might notice that the word he and the word who is in brackets beside the word God. Because it is true in the literal Greek text, the word God is not present. And thus there are some who read into this far different from what is actually there. Even though the word God is not there, if it is the word he, which is a pronoun, we might ask what is the antecedent of that pronoun? That is to say, what is the word to which the word God refers? All we need to do is go back one verse, and you'll notice that it says the church of the living God, which is the pillar and ground of the truth, and then the very next pronoun refers back to it. So either way, we are talking about the manifestation of God in the flesh. You and I can't read that any other way and do justice to the sacred text, can we? The mystery of godliness begins with God was manifested in the flesh. That takes our mind immediately to the marvelous incarnation, doesn't it? There was a time when, in fact, the grandeur of God in the form of its second person took the form of human flesh. We read about that, in fact, in two of the gospel accounts with great detail. In the book of Matthew, as well as the book of Luke, we have record of, in fact, how and wasn't it true that Mary brought forth into the world the Son of God. Those very thoughts challenge us today to appreciate the miracle that was wrought 
the marvelous wonders that took place. But yet, Paul here states for us to consider that that was the first element denoted in the great mystery of godliness. With regard to the coming of the Christ in that fashion, it was foretold in the Old Testament, wasn't it? Wasn't it the case in the day of Isaiah when that marvelous sign was given to the prophet Isaiah and he said, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son and his name shall be Emmanuel. Isaiah 7 verse 14. As we turn back the clock, then roughly 800 years before the Christ was ever born, Isaiah, speaking in the greatness of the marvel of God, had affirmed the virgin should conceive. Yes, indeed, a woman that had never known a man never known a man in that sexual fashion and way, and yet she brought forth the one whose name would be Emmanuel. Matthew quotes that passage in Matthew 1.23, and in fact he says, His name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Oh, how wonderful it is to see Matthew quote Isaiah, affirm it to be realized in the very birth of the Christ. And so it is, as we notice his manifestation in the flesh, time and again, we've noticed that that one that was born in that fashion was called God. In John 1, beginning in verse 1, do we not read there that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. So who was this Word? Thirteen verses later we notice, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Indeed, this one that was thus becoming flesh, he, of course, is the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus. Thus, his manifestation in the flesh is a critical element. No infidel is able to explain that thought away. We are, in fact, in the very presence of this one born without the aid of a man. Wasn't it true in Jeremiah 31, verse 22, that it was there prophesied that a woman shall compass a man to bring forth into the world by conception? Mary had never known a man, never known Joseph in that way, and yet of her was born the Son of God. These thoughts challenge us to revisit Luke 1, verses 31 to 35, when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and told her that that which shall be born of thee shall be the Son of the Highest, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That kingdom would have a perpetual nature to it, a nature in which it would not be brought to dissolution or brought, in fact, to its end. Manifested in the flesh only challenges us to wonder, what is it that shall come next? We notice in verse number 16, just as surely as the nature of Jesus' birth has this character, manifested in the flesh, God himself, it is true, isn't it, that Jesus was frequently told to us to be that very nature of God. What was it that Jesus told Philip in John 14, 9? Ye have seen me, ye have seen the Father. He was God in presence, in fact, and in the presentation of the hour. This very day, notice what is it that falls next. As we see this greatness of what has started us in our discussion of this mystery, Paul hastens us to notice, justified in the Spirit. Thus, what is it that next comes to our forefront? As you can see by some of the things I ask us to consider, this one perhaps may seem a bit intriguing. What is Paul affirming when he states that Jesus was justified in the Spirit? Might we revisit the Roman letter for a moment and ask in what way are you and I justified? We understand well it only happens by virtue of the blood of Christ. 
because isn't it true that justification has reference to being pronounced as righteous? As some have said it, it is being presented just as one had not made error. We understand you and I are only presented in that fashion by virtue of the blood of Christ. In Romans 5, beginning in verse 8, we are reminded so interestingly that God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then how does he follow it in verse 9? Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved by his life. Justified by his blood? Absolutely. For without the shedding of blood is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. It is then the case that you and I are solely dependent upon the marvel of the blood of Christ, the opportunity for justification that it offers. But in this passage, that is not that to which Paul refers. He says Jesus was justified in the Spirit. In what way was Jesus justified? In what way was he, in fact, pronounced righteous? That takes us immediately to the character of his life, doesn't it? The Lord had no sin of which he needed justification. We still can so abundantly read of Hebrews 4.15, For we have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. Jesus, you see, was that high priest that was separate from sinners, Hebrews 7.26. In language like that, we notice the Lord thus lived righteously, and of the Spirit he was proclaimed as righteous. Are we not told in John 3.34 that he had the Spirit without measure? When one thus contemplates the fact that Jesus, even in his baptism, said, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Matthew 3.15 When we thus speak of the fact that Jesus was justified in the Spirit, that considers him greatly different than you and me. We need his blood for our justification. He, though, was justified by his virtue of spiritually following all that had been revealed in the Old Testament, and furthermore, the Spirit being given to him without measure allowed him to set before us the perfect thoroughfare for justification today. The second plank in the mystery of godliness has now been affirmed, manifested in the flesh, justified in the Spirit. With that notion set before us, note what occurs next. Thirdly, he quickly affirms, seen of angels. The Lord, seen of angels. Oh, how often our mind perhaps races to recall the importance that the angels held in the public ministry of our Savior. And in fact, even prior to that, I would ask you to note just a few of the things that are mentioned for us in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus was frequently the subject of interest of the angels, wasn't he? I've listed only a few of the matters for your consideration, but note how significant they were. Wasn't it angels who announced his birth? There in Luke chapter 2, when those shepherds had in fact come to the place, they were surrounded by this heavenly host of angels who in fact said, in marvelous wonder, that this day is born unto you a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Luke 2 verses 11 and following. Not only that, we notice that in verse 14 of that same chapter as they sang the marvelous wonder of the hymns of praise with regard to the birth of the Savior, again the angels were a part of that host. Furthermore, we notice immediately in Matthew 4 verse 11, after his temptation, 
after on the third occasion that the devil, it says, left him for a season, an angel appeared strengthening him. We see again that angels were intensely interested in the work of the, of the Savior and in his livelihood here. Perhaps thirdly, we can notice as well, in Luke 22, verse 43, an angel, even in Gethsemane, appeared to the Savior, strengthening him. Finally, we might well understand in Matthew 28, verses 2, as well as verse 6, even at the time of his crucifixion and thereafter at the resurrection, it was an angel who rolled the stone away. And it was also an angel who said, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He is risen, he is not here. Again, Matthew 28, verse number 6. All of that tells us the angels were greatly intrigued and interesting and involved. Perhaps finally, with regard to even his ascension, in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, we recall that as the apostles lifted their eyes heavenward and watched the Savior disappear into the clouds, it was angels on that occasion who said, He's coming back in the same manner in which you've seen him depart. Indeed, he was seen of angels. Notice the third plank then in this element, in this mystery of godliness. He was in fact manifested in the flesh, justified in the spirit seen of angels. Those three hasten us to ask what's next. What's the fourth element in this same listing? Preached unto the Gentiles? Intriguing statement, isn't it? Paul, after all, was the apostle to the Gentiles, as he affirmed in Galatians 2, verses 8 through 10. And here, as he made note of the fact that Christ was preached unto the Gentiles, this might be another place where it would be interesting to notice a bit about the language. If you're reading in the American Standard Translation, you might again notice that it replaces that phrase with this one, preached among the nations. It is the case the word Gentiles is present in the Greek, so the King James would be the better rendering in this instance. Jesus preached among the Gentiles. Why would that be such a significant element in the mystery of godliness? Why would that be such an important point to make? And I submit to you that there are several ideas that would be worthy of thought. First of all, when Christ, of course, came into the world, the Judaistic system was then in force, wasn't it? The law of Moses was still in vogue, and it was that which God expected his faithful Israelites to pursue and to obey. However, isn't it interesting that Jesus, before he ascended back to the Father, opened the door wide to the recognition that soon would be the opportunity for all to appreciate the greatness of the gospel because they too would have opportunity to be considered within it. Jesus did say, didn't he, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, Mark 16:15. He didn't say go preach only to Jews or go preach only to those of the house of Israel. He said go and preach to every creature. Luke's version in Luke 24, verses 46 and following, presents it to us, all nations. It might thus be grandly wondered and appreciated that in Acts 1, verses 8 and 9, shortly before he ascended to the Father, Jesus said to those same apostles, You will be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and into the uttermost parts of the earth. The gospel would progressively move outward. It would begin indeed on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem, and that would be the hub of the early church. However, it wasn't many chapters before the area of Judea was exposed to the marvel of the gospel. 
By the time we reach Acts 8, Samaria was beneath its throes because Philip the Evangelist worked in that area. And Acts 8 verse 12 still tells us that upon hearing the gospel, many, many women were baptized into Christ. By the time we reach Acts 13, we are now in position to see the gospel being sent to the uttermost parts of the earth. As the Apostle Paul went on not one, not two, but three missionary journeys, carrying that gospel across the Roman Empire, and finally even a voyage to Rome, in which the imperial city would be exposed to the wonder of the gospel of Christ. Those help us to appreciate, indeed, the gospel preached among the Gentiles. And by the time we encounter Colossians 1.23, Paul had said every creature under heaven has been able to hear the wonder of the blessed news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of these points help us to see that the, pro the proclamation of the gospel was a fundamental element in its godliness. And it still is that way today, isn't it? We can still understand that Jesus was in fact manifested in the flesh. The incarnation was real. It was no figment of anyone's imagination. The Lord was here. Secondly, he was justified in the Spirit. The Scriptures proclaim it so. Thirdly, he was seen of angels because the Bible tells us. Was he preached among the Gentiles? Absolutely. And are not you and I beneficiaries of that blessing today? You and I wouldn't have been counted among those of the house of Israel. But loudly and clearly the gospel is heralded from pulpits even in the United States of America 20 centuries later. Thankfully, indeed, Christ was preached unto the Gentiles. Paul was perhaps exhibit A of taking that message to them. As we think about some of the other matters near the close of that slide, we are still reminded in Titus 2 verse 11 that the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men. It is significant, again, it wasn't just to the Israelites, to the Hebrews, to the Jews, to those of Judea. It has appeared to all men. Thankfully, we might only wonder what is element five in this platform, in this platform of the mystery of godliness. You'll notice with me it is the following. Believed on in the world. Believed on in the world. It is the case, isn't it, that the proclamation of truth has been met by a belief by those in the world. Wouldn't it be a tragedy and sad indeed if the proclamation of that truth were met with utter, 100% complete disbelief? But that isn't the case. It's true enough that God allows individuals to make their own decisions. And he allows individuals to reject and to disbelieve if that be their choice. And I've listed a few passages in which that is exactly what occurred. For instance, as we will recollect in Acts 13.48, on the first missionary journey, Paul proclaimed boldly the character of the Christ. His death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. But we are quickly reminded that there were some Jews who stirred up and would not believe, and Paul had to leave town for his own safety. Later in Acts 17, as that chapter closed in its final three verses, we also remember in that marvelous city of Athens, as Paul proclaimed again the truth of the gospel and that there is but one God, and it's the one they call the unknown God. It was in that case that thankfully we are told some believed. Oh, how joyous we read those verses, but the very next verse says there are some that didn't. God does leave that choice to us. 
Thankfully, we notice in this verse, he was believed on in the world. There are those who do believe. Aren't you and I happy to be counted among that number? Aren't we joyous and thankful that our heart has been receptive and we have understood the truth of the gospel and we indeed have not only heard it, but we've believed upon it. We have observed its preaching and you and I have responded with the faithfulness that God demands. Believed on in the world. As you consider some of the other verses that I ask you to at least think about with me, perhaps we can revisit the parable of the sower, of the seed in Matthew 13. As that sower went forth to sow, some of the seed fell on the wayside soil. Some of it fell on stony ground. Some of it on the thorny ground. And in each of those instances, we find there was far less than what one would have desired. For on the wayside soil... Remember, the birds of the air snatched it and ate it up before it ever even was able to bring forth. As far as the stony ground, it did bring forth at first. It began to grow, but it withered away when the sun got hot. Notice that when Jesus identified and explained the parable, he said that when the pressures and difficulties arise and when the working of Satan brings that pressure, they will lose their faith and they'll turn aside from it just as that plant withers in that stony ground. We remember the thorny soil was the third one that the Lord mentioned. Here we notice it also began to grow, the seed did. And as the plant, however, grew, the time came it was choked out by the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Luke 8, verses 8 and following. Notice in that instance, though, we joyfully find one more soil. The fertile ground. The good and honest heart that not only hears and appreciates the preaching of that, but responds in faith and brings forth much fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, some a hundredfold. Aren't we again able to see that believed on in the world? How wonderful Paul can make reference to that belief. How that men and that women and the boys and that girls have been responsive in faith, in obedience to the proclamation of this mystery of godliness. Today we are still the beneficiaries of that very same idea. It might be fair, of course, to observe that Satan discourages belief. He doesn't want you and I to believe. In fact, if he has his way, he would desire us to remain on the outskirts at best of belief, to not allow that belief to, in fact, result in any kind of obedience. Simply remain at a place where the belief is an empty belief, a vain belief, an unproductive belief. This belief in the world... This character of being received in this fashion only re leaves us with one final one. The sixth element. Paul goes on to say that he was received up into glory. Received up into glory. As you can see in some of the passages, it might be interesting to notice again one other matter of the language that's here before us. The King James reads it received up into glory. That may seem a bit unusual because in the other instances before it seemed that the word in is what occurred most often. Notice again the first justified in the Spirit. Secondly, or firstly, manifested in the flesh. We notice also believed on in the world. And suddenly the word in too seems to be present now. I would submit to you it's the same preposition in Greek in this case as the others. It would seem the better rendering would then be, as I have written it, received up in glory. 
in which we have reference to the ascension. That one again to which we've referred before in Acts chapter 1, when those apostles watched as the Lord ascended into the clouds, that was prophesied in the Old Testament and how glorious it was going to be. Daniel, for example, in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, made note of the fact that when the Son of Man passes through the clouds and the action of days, he will receive dominion, a kingdom, power, majesty, and might. Did that occur? Indeed it did. For when Jesus ascended through the clouds to the Ancient of Days in Acts chapter 1, not many verses later, the apostles were baptized in the Holy Spirit. The day of Pentecost had come and the kingdom came into being that very day. Another passage perhaps to be noted is the closing two verses in the 24th Psalm. In Psalm 24 verses 9 and 10, another prophecy of the ascension. There, how glorious it would be. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall enter in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Oh, the wonder of the ascension. You and I should not look at it too dimly or consider it in too minor a fashion. It is one of the elements that, are the, that is the hallmark of the mystery of godliness. One of the final thoughts relative to the greatness of that ascension might be seen in some of the other ways the New Testament writers refer to it. In texts such as Ephesians 4, verses 8 and 9, Jesus there, in fact, is said to have led captivity captive when he ascended on high. When he ascended on high. Perhaps another passage would be the Hebrews 10, verse 12 passage, in which he made one sacrifice for sins forever and is set down where? At the right hand of the throne of God. Stated, of course, in reference to his ascension. When you and I speak then about the mystery of godliness, might we quickly remark and think about the occurrence of all of these six elements that form it. First of all, Jesus was manifested in the flesh. Secondly, he was justified in the spirit. Thirdly, he was seen of angels. Fourthly, preached among the Gentiles. Fifthly, believed on in the world. And sixthly, received up in glory. And when we consider the basic elements of godliness that is, is involved in that list, it challenges us today to be very aware of the rudimentary truths of the Word of God. This is where the basic notion of godliness must begin. If we don't consider these as true, believe them with all of our heart, how will we allow our lives to ever be impacted by that which is built on the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus? But on the other hand, if we accept these, believe them fully, allow them to control our thinking and our mind, then we will be happy to trust that the Scriptures are what the Lord said that they are, and we'll be happy to allow Him to guide our life in all the ways that is said to be godly in the regular walks of life before us. So tonight, what about your godliness and what about mine? Do you and I firmly believe these things, and do we allow them to impact our life with truth? Or do we only accept them because someone has told us they're true? Maybe we don't fully believe them ourselves. My friend, if you're in that position, please read the Bible. Read it carefully, prayerfully, sharefully, earnestly, honestly, and forthrightly. And let God speak to you. And consider the evidence fairly, honestly, and openly. You'll come to appreciate the fullness of that godly mystery. And as you appreciate it, it will touch your life in every way. Tonight, if you're not a Christian, if you haven't allowed it to touch you yet, 
why do you delay? If you know that Jesus died for you, if you understand that you're a sinner and are in need of salvation and you know that it's offered through the blood of the Savior, through the plan of salvation that he instituted, why not tonight obey that which you know to be true? Let Jesus' blood wash your sins away and you will in begin a life that you've not known heretofore. If you have been baptized, knowing how great and how wonderful that gospel is, but have not been true to it, you have perhaps forgotten some of the mysteries of godliness. Come back to your first love. We're going to stand in a moment and sing a hymn of encouragement. Following that, if upon your acknowledgement, we'd be happy to pray for you and with you if that would be the need of your life. Or to pray for your strength if that would be the need in your life. If there would be some way in which we could be of assistance, we would urge you to allow us to know if you would while together we stand and while we sing.